0: Welcome to Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast about entrepreneurship-led economic development. Here is your host, David Ponraj, founder and CEO of Economic Impact Catalyst.
1: So, uh, Leslie, welcome to Breaking Down Barriers.
0: Thank you. It's a
2: pleasure to be here. I'm so excited.
1: Yes, I am also. I was just kind of reminiscing about all the other friends and colleagues of yours that we've had over the years. So this has been a long time in the making and I'm thrilled we're finally here.
2: I am as well. Thank you. I am uh, I feel very humbled to join their company as uh, interviewees on this podcast.
1: Well, we'll call it a conversation. So <laughs> let's start with kind of your journey. Where did it start? Tell us a little bit about, you know, you've done work across the country. Tell us a little bit about your journey and how it started, why you got into this work and and what you've kind of accomplished uh, over the past years.
2: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I hope we have enough time to cover all of that because, you know, I'm old. Uh, In all seriousness, I moved into um, economic development several decades ago when I had the opportunity to work on a transaction um, really in a pro bono orientation um, as a, a sort of outreach of my executive role in the commercial real estate community in Ann Arbor. And through this project, was able to work with a very well-known innovator who has uh, designed and developed some of the world's most uh, important therapeutics, who is looking to launch his second startup in the sort of deep tech life sciences space and needed commercial real estate to do that. And through the process of working with him and Pfizer and state economic developers and local economic developers and the university systems in and around Ann Arbor, I realized that my entire career to that point had led me to a place where I could apply all of the tenets of relationship building, deal structuring, negotiation. Uh, imagination, innovation, and um, execution to this entirely different practice that had sort of prior to that moment been invisible to me or unknown to me. And it really spurred an enthusiasm to understand that space better and ultimately pursue that as a a full-time professional role. So I Uh, worked on that transaction for a number of years, and then ultimately found my way to the Michigan Economic Development Corporation, where I had the opportunity from a very high level to understand the inner workings of the innovation economy with the incumbent economy, the way incentives and investments in new ideas sort of work together, And also really work on the ground level of capital development across the state of Michigan because we were very invested not only in um, direct investments in life science startups. So I got this sort of really fast education and what it looked like to lead venture investments in the innovation economy, but also in investing in the venture capital ecosystem across the state. So really came to understand sort of the power of those investments and in unlocking innovation and also um, expanding economic potential. And really, I think, understanding the tension between traditional economic development and sort of uh, entrepreneurial or, or innovation oriented economic development and the way they can work together and the way they sort of have a, a, a tension or friction with one another um, and, and I think uh, became really aware of the power of uh, really strategically developed investment thesis around building a new economy and um, the criticality of policy, a policy framework that supports that um, environment building or marketplace building that were really important um, elements of an overall strategy that needed to be tied together. And I think... One of my frustrations now as a longtime practitioner is that we often forget that sort of policy piece or the criticality of sort of policy and advocacy in building the framework's marketplace or environment for this work to thrive. Um, And so that's really my foray into this work was the time I spent at the MEDC, I retain those relationships today, as you and I have talked about a lot. This work is all about relationships. It's all about the people who are doing this work across the country and what we can learn from each other and teach each other um, and sort of experiment with together as we, as we build a um, thriving, resilient, and just economy. Um, across the country. So that's how it all began. There are lots of things to talk about that have happened since, but that was uh, that was the, the very early sort of start to my economic development career.
1: Yeah, and MEDC, which uh, is Michigan Economic Development Corporation, is also a client of ours, and uh, we've had so much um, uh, fun working with them around innovating, around even more advanced concepts, like how do you convene? As a state organization, all of the partners, how do you create uh, a place for all of them to come and share ideas and collaborate and be able to share and talk about the same metrics and impact, which we think is pretty advanced as an ecosystem, even if the concept is simple, simple because you have to really bring so many players together around Mm -hmm. a common vision. And so we've always seen MEDC at the forefront of innovating around ecosystem building. Yeah. so talk to me about from MEDC. Uh, I know you, you know, I can almost have like you walk around the country to say where all you've been, <laughs> but where where did your, where did your journey take you next?
2: Yeah. Um, so from MEDC, I always like to say I went home. I went to Detroit where I was born in 1967 um, in the middle of the sort of civil uprisings and pursuit of justice for black Detroiters. And I feel very strongly that the energy of that movement and that plight um, for justice exists in me at a cellular level, um, as as a result of of being born in that space and time, um, and I I was recruited to Tech Town to um, position myself to lead that organization upon um, the founder Randall Charlton's retirement, which was at that time planned. And we had the opportunity to work together for a couple of years before he exited and I ultimately became the CEO of TechTown. Um, one will feel forever blessed for being able to learn from Randall, um, who is this charmingly brilliant and dynamic uh, Brit with this lovely accent and giant imagination he had uh, founded and sold Astorand, which was a biotech company in Detroit, a very significant and important company. And um, I was able to sort of learn as his right hand human and then ultimately lead tech town to um to I think the, the place where it is today, where my very dear friend Ned Stabler is, is uh, remains the CEO who assumed that role after I left. And the reason I felt so called to Detroit, I think, was one of my frustrations at the macro level was the distance between me and impact. And the call to Detroit was really an opportunity to close that gap and get closer to the impact sort of see the faces of the people who are going to feel the impact of that effort. And it just so happened, uh, I arrived not long before uh, the 2008 crash of um, the automotive industry, which precipitated a national recession and the sort of country's uh, single largest bankruptcy. And um, I got to sit in the execution of a series of strategies around innovation and entrepreneurship as a tool set that could help us sort of emerge from the crash of the autos with a new economic perspective, but also a new economic opportunity. And I think it was the first time in 100 years that Detroiters had really thought about what could exist beyond the bounds of an automotive industry and its sort of service-oriented adjacencies, and think about alternative energy, tech as a pathway, um, uh, advanced manufacturing in ways that took advantage of our, our legacy insights, but also moved us into the future. And we were less afraid of failure. We were more focused on trying as much as we could to see how it could change or impact the future of our city. And it was a really exciting time. We had the freedom to be in the midst of a sort of multi-layered crisis and everything we were trying was um, an opportunity to learn something new and build for the future. And we got a lot wrong. Uh, We did a lot of things that didn't really work, but we could see, again, the faces of the people. We were touching, and I think it was there that um, my sort of personal perspective around societal and economic justice really merged with a professional perspective about societal and economic justice because it became very clear to me and my colleagues that in many ways we were building an economy in Detroit that was not going to accrue to the benefit of all Detroiters, and that we had to figure out how to change that pretty quickly. Um, And that has become an anchoring sort of philosophy of my entire career that we must first think about, engage, and design for all humans that exist within a particular ecosystem and not just the ones that are typically at the table. and I think that has has become a source of great learning and experimentation for me and the teams that I've worked with in the in the years since then.
1: Yeah, that Detroit story is fascinating, right? De- Detroit almost was the epicenter of the the global, uh, uh, I would say, you know, meltdown or global recession because of kind of you know where it started but also detroit was then the poster child for everything that was wrong right i i remember hearing in 2008 uh stories like oh don't stop at the traffic stop sign because it could be dangerous if you're driving to detroit things like that like it was then highlighted for everything that was wrong but i love the turnaround story and and the leaders that came about as a result of that turnaround one of them of course you know pam lewis and the new economy initiative and the amount of uh, impact they were able to have uh, supporting entrepreneurship you've got tech town you've got the county you've got all these players kind of coming together uh, detroit economic development corporation degc mm-hmm. and others tell us a little bit about kind of what were some of the ideas you all came to the table with to kind of help turn this around because i don't think many people know like like you at an intimate level what the turnaround looked like and you know when i visited in 2015 it was like a brand new city like you know like it was a a city reborn in fact that's how people looked at it that it had come back uh Detroit had come back and there was an amazing comeback story and it was a story of all of the small businesses uh not just the big autos
2: yeah I appreciate that um and as someone who was in the trenches for all of that time um I feel heartened to hear that that was your experience in 2015 because in many ways um we were lost. And what we knew was that we had to try a bunch of different things because doing the same things and expecting a different outcome, um, is not only as they say, the definition of insanity, but it wasn't going to work. Right. And so, um, we tried but we tried a bunch of things, uh, to run through a couple of them quickly. I think at one point we thought, at TechTown, in particular, that everyone could be an entrepreneur if only we gave them um, the skill sets and investments to pursue um, that lifestyle, and we trained thousands—something like 2,400—would be entrepreneurs um, over the course of several years with some significant investments from Kaufman and others around the community, including the New Economy Initiative, obviously in the MEDC. And what we found um, was maybe not surprising, but not everyone is designed to be an entrepreneur. Not everyone has the risk uh, tolerance for that. Not everyone has the economic capacity. Not everyone has um, the networks for that. And in many instances, what uh, some of those folks wanted was new jobs uh, because the jobs they had prior to uh, the catastrophe no longer existed, right? And so I think one of the things we learned from getting parts of it wrong was that we also needed a really robust workforce development strategy that sat sort of in partnership to the entrepreneurial efforts because. Um, well, many people were positioned and had the the sort of skills and tolerance to be entrepreneurs, many didn 't and we had to really think about instead of sitting in silos becoming more porous and integrated in the way we were thinking about that work so I think that was One of the early lessons, um, I think a a secondary lesson that we learned was about the criticality of capital that continues to show uh, itself to me every day I practice in this field. Capital is very disproportionately distributed across the country, and a second opportunity to frustrate the people we were seeking to help in those days was to move them to a place of readiness to launch their idea, and then not having the access to the capital they needed to actually do it. Um, which meant sort of feeling like we were leading people to the edge of water in the desert, and and there and there was no water, and so they remained thirsty. And I think we had to really think about how we could quickly structure capital um, stacks that would solve for that problem. Um, but it wasn't easy. And I think when you um, when you look at sort of everything from grants to debt to equity, um, it's really complicated. And it takes a, a lot of thinking for the distribution to be just and inclusive. And I think we learned that in the early days. And then I think the same is also true about revenue, right? Uh, as an entrepreneur, the best form of capital is always revenue. And access to contracts are also very uh, limited and barred and, and sort of rich with barriers. And we also had to think about, like, how are we going to ensure that all of these entrepreneurs, we've sort of marched to the edge of this opportunity, can convert the contracts. And that's where folks like the DEGC and others came in as we started to think about what would free and open access to contracts look like. Um, and then there are two additional things that I'll share that I think we learned, um, that I carry with me today. And one is what you said at the top of the question. Uh, and it's all about collaboration prior to 2008. I don't know that any of us in the practice felt urged and scented, required desirous of deep and wide collaboration. And post-2008, there was no other way. And I think we figured out how to get in a room, um, even if we didn't agree on all of the paths forward, to collectively agree that we together are a singular voice in uh, in pursuit of a just and economic outcome and that we were going to get further faster and do better if we were doing those things together. And we learned all about the messiness of that, the sort of real human elements of collaborative um. Uh, community building and and built some programs at tech town that sort of leaned into that right that the medc founded and that still continue to work today. Um, many folks talk about Dan Gilbert and Rock and, and what it looks like today. But in those early days it was Bisdom U that was running an accelerator with Ross and Maria and they were trying to figure out how to make their way in the world and instead of us making our ways in the world separately, they and us and Next Energy and Automation Alley and Spark, we're all coming together to say, hey, how can we get further faster together? And um, the funders were celebrating that by investing in our efforts. So we felt like instead of competing against each other, which often occurs in this practice, we were working together to solve the same problem. And it was awesome. I remember the first time we had a really significant disagreement in the group. And you're always afraid, like, how are we gonna navigate this conflict? And instead of sort of fussing about it or rumoring about it or complaining about it, literally um, I got a call that said, I feel a certain way about the way this thing is going. We were able to unpack it, address it, and shift. Uh, nobody died, no relationships were ruined, and we were able to solve the problem. So I feel like uh, we learned a lot about the critical importance of collaboration. Uh, And I am forever grateful for that because it's informed my work every minute since then. Um, And then the last thing we learned is the most important thing, which is we're building an entire movement in the city of Detroit, that was not getting to the neighborhoods. It was not reaching the people who lived in our city. And it was sort of singularly accruing to a group of folks that found themselves in the city center. And many of the people that were in the city center at that time were not from Detroit. They were people that had moved there to sort of activate against the opportunity In which there is no shame, but we had to ensure that not only the new Detroiters, but the lifelong Detroiters were benefiting um, from the efforts of the city center. And being a person who led an organization that not only had an intellectual, strategic and spiritual presence in the city center, but had a giant building in the city center, um, we ultimately came to realize that we had to put our resources and influence uh, sort of figuratively in a backpack and carry them to the communities across Detroit. And it's that piece of the work of which I remain the most proud, uh, changed, uh, educated and influenced by um, because it's there where we learned that every community across this country has a plan has an idea about what their future can be and lack in many instances the resources that are free-flowing in other areas of those communities and or influence to find their way into rooms where decisions are being made to execute those visions. And we didn't need to move into the city or the neighborhoods and give them a plan. We needed to move into the neighborhoods and hear theirs and help figure out how to resource those. Um, And that has literally been the operating model for my uh, professional interventions in every moment since we moved from one uh, neighborhood to seven. And I believe we're at the cutting edge of um, neighborhood engagement that the city still embodies. And it's that part of the work that I think is the most important.
1: I, I want to jump next to Memphis, which is also a powerful story. But I want to first recap some of the things that you said that that stood out to me as things that our practitioners would uh, would love to just kind of you know learn more about, and you know would love to know uh, at the end of this conversation where you're going next and how they can still continue to be a part of this journey. But the, the first piece that you said that entrepreneurship is not for everyone. The access should be for everyone, but whether you start or not. It should not be for everyone because I tell people all the time in a very crude and direct way, entrepreneurship is about wealth creation and you cannot become poor in the process of becoming rich, right. that you should not lose your home in the process of trying to start a business. Right. That that it, just because you have an idea and it's a bad idea doesn't make you a bad person. Like everybody cycles through ideas and there will be a time when your idea will come together with all the other resources to actually make it launch, but you need the social capital, the networks, the uh, the financial means, et cetera, to launch. And and so I think that's a really important point that, that the access to entrepreneurship is for everyone, but we have to really make sure that when people start, that they are starting businesses that can truly build wealth. The other thing that you mentioned is the workforce development piece. We're also highlighting that in the sense that uh, even for small businesses, talent is, Uh, second only to capital. Without the right talent, even a small business cannot launch, right? Because uh, when we surveyed uh, businesses in Michigan, we found that uh, when you made over $250,000 or had more than nine employees, talent was a bigger problem than even capital
0: Mm -hmm.
1: uh, because it was harder to find and retain talent, especially in this economy. And then the last two things, uh, there is a a website, I don't know if you've heard of this, called anyinsights.org. And it was the blueprint that Pam left behind as legacy for the work that she had done as part of NEI that talks about the power of convening. And I shared that across the country. And I'm so glad you brought that as one of the big things that you took away. was that the collaborative nature, right? In a lot of ecosystems, it's so siloed because everybody thinks they're competing for the same dollars, which they're mm-hmm. not because if they come together, the net uh, sum is so much bigger than the parts. Uh, and so, love that. And the last thing you said about inclusiveness and really showing up in those communities—I uh, think uh, those are all part of. I think the next great book you're going to write. <laughs> now that I ideas in your mind, but
2: <laughs> I love that. I love that. I mean, I think I think you're exactly right. Um, those are all of the things that we're we're all trying to learn and do together. And if we build something that excludes anyone, we've we've failed, right?
1: Yeah. So, so let's talk about Memphis, which is another epicenter, and you worked at a place called Epicenter, uh, <laughs> right? So, so tell us about how you end up, ended up there and kind of, you know, what were your takeaways from your time leading uh, Epicenter?
2: Yeah. Um, so what's interesting, you said something about Detroit. Everyone was paying attention to us, right? Um, and we're trying to figure out what we were going to get right and what we were going to get wrong. Um, some people were cheering for us, some people were cheering against us, but everyone was paying attention, um... And over the course of our time, many uh, other regions came to visit our community and ask us questions and and try to learn from us. While at the same time, we were visiting other communities that we felt were um, somehow or in many ways further along the the sort of trajectory toward an innovation economy than we were. Um, And it was as a result of those exchanges, folks coming to us and us going to them that I came to know many people across the country, including a bunch of really awesome folks in Memphis. And ultimately, um, I was recruited to Memphis to try and um, not sort of wash, rinse, repeat what we had done in Detroit, but really take what we had done in Detroit, what we had learned in Detroit, and think about the ways that we could apply a similar set of strategies in Memphis, who was in many ways suffering from the same economic challenges, but in the absence of a sort of signaling crisis, right? I don't know if in Detroit we realized the deep value of the signaling crisis at the time we were living through it because it felt so challenging, but it encouraged and incented, A, a bunch of dollars flowing into the ecosystem, And B, a real commitment to trying different things, right? Like fearless experimentation and a willingness to learn and a patience on the part of our investors, stakeholders, partners to try some things, even if it meant that some of it was going to teach us things, but not necessarily achieve the goals we had intended. Um, And I think we did a really good job of that. One of the things I failed to mention in our conversation about Detroit, which I think is important about our conversation about Memphis, is that Kresge, through the Detroit Future Cities work, I think really did a good job of reminding us that 100-year-old challenges would not be solved in five and I think that orientation is really important because while you make progress every year, sort of arriving at the place we imagine is going to take a long time. And if you look back at the Detroit Future City work, 50 years in the, in the as an estimate, right? And I think then you realize we're going to be in this for a long time. We're going to have a lot of successes. We're going to have a lot of setbacks, but it's going to take us a while to get there. And I think in many other places, there's this deep desire for a silver bullet that changes uh, an economic circumstance in a in a sort of really fast amount of time. And in Detroit, we knew that wasn't going to happen. In fact, uh, I remember meeting with folks in Pittsburgh very early on that said we're the like 30-year overnight success. So like, buckle up, you're going to be in this for a while. Um so, so Memphis recruited me said, what can we learn from what you did in Detroit? What do we need to know? And I think there is a little bit of um, outsider influence, right? You've done this before somewhere else. Can you help us think about how to do it here? Um, really beautiful and inspired people and a deep commitment to doing something different. But in the absence of a crisis, candidly, the crisis was, you know, uh, We've all been boiling in this soup for a really long time, and we don't really even acknowledge or recognize some of the elements of crisis in in which we sit. And so it was a very different starting point, right, where we were saying these are the economic conditions, these are the economic opportunities, and we believe that entrepreneurship as a lever, not the single lever, but as a lever, um, can sort of pull us up into um, a pursuit of a just and inclusive economy. And some people were really excited about that, and other people were wondering why we had to do that when everything seemed fine, right? Again, this sort of absence of a crisis. Um, But we set, I think, a vision, a mission, an agenda, and and a personality about what we thought inclusive ecosystem Uh, building could look like. We did all of the things you and I just talked about in our experience in Detroit, which is we convened, 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 convened. I convened for the first 18 months I was there to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, ecosystem players, corporate partners, like what's working, what's not working, how do we know, when will we know, and we built a 10-year strategy around what we learned in in those 18 months about what a just and inclusive entrepreneurial ecosystem could look like in Memphis. And we raised a bunch of money. We created access to capital across the stack. And we were unapologetic about our commitment to building an inclusive portfolio of entrepreneurs across the ecosystem. Um, And I think in many ways, it worked. Um, We we changed the conversation. We shifted the narrative. Uh, We brought tech and non-tech, uh, entrepreneurs together, we focused on main street and high tech commercialization. And we're able to have a conversation about both of those things that didn't exclude the other, because I think another thing that's really important for ecosystem builders is to acknowledge that all elements of this emerging economy are important, um, and the place-based elements of it that show up at the corner of Main and Main are as important as the next novel technology that's going to uh, employ thousands of people, create change for human and and, and planet health, um, and create wealth at an exponential level. And some people, I think, struggled to layer um, those together. And Memphis was a really beautiful expression of that, how it existed in all of those layers. Um, I also think having the benefit of practicing in two beautiful black American cities where the communities are predominantly black and yet our black neighbors often lack the access to opportunity that many um, of their of their white counterparts have Um Having an unapologetic conversation about justice and what that looks like um, for our economies was really important and welcome in in Memphis in ways that I think we were really heartened by as we executed um the epicenter strategies. And I think we did bring together a um, prior disconnected ecosystem into a collaborative model where we were all making decisions together. And we were again, navigating our differences. So I think the model that you talked about, what did we learn in Detroit was very much what we executed in, um, in Memphis uh, to a a great level of success. And that work continues today The piece that we didn't quite get to, that I'm urging to get to as I continue to move through this career, is the policy frameworks. How do we make sure that we're building policy frameworks in an environment for um, the access that you and I are talking to? And I think that's probably the next level of opportunity um, for this practice. And then how do we ensure that that access to capital and people continues to be as unencumbered as possible?
1: Wow. There's so much to unpack there, but in the interest of time, I will, I will move on. But we would love to, you know, someday revisit some of the learnings from uh, Memphis as well. Uh, where where did you end up next? What what was next after Memphis?
2: Yeah, so um, the the thing that I did after Memphis is the thing I'm still doing, and in the process of transitioning into a new role um, in my career, as as we've sort of alluded to. I um, moved from Memphis to lead an initiative called Get Cities, and, and that stands for gender equity and technology. And it has really been focused around moving women, trans and non-binary humans into their power across the tech economy. And there are a variety of things, um, David, that were really interesting to me about that. Uh, one, after having been a statewide practitioner, a local practitioner, GATT was a national sort of um, framework. So it really focused on what is the national environment for uh, equity in tech? What is the national need? And then how do we activate that in multiple cities to see what we learn through our experimentation? So a national framework with place-based activations and um, that sort of national orientation, I think, is a really interesting and important thing for us as ecosystem developers to think about. You mentioned uh, Main Street America, which has a very similar um, operating model, right? A national perspective around narrative policy research and then localized activations. And I really think there's some there there. And I wanted to learn about that and really live in that Um, myriad cities. What can we learn by juxtaposing our experiments and how they work in multiple cities against one another? And I think there's really rich value in that. And then the third thing, and we talked about this when we were talking about Detroit, um, there's a real intersectional perspective about uh, education, workforce in the incumbent economy, and the innovation economy. And they really um, aligned to create a set of KPI about increasing access to education, increasing access to jobs, but also increasing access to capital for entrepreneurs. And it is the first time in my career where I've seen a single initiative sort of layer those on top of each other um, with the specificity of intent around a particular population and or um, industry. And I really loved that. Uh, so I took it, and I've been doing that for the last uh, three and a half years. We are active in Chicago, DC, and Miami. And are in the sort of process of thinking about what have we learned through these experiments. What does sustainability and resiliency look like for? these efforts and how can we ensure that nationally and locally they exist sort of in perpetuity to hold the sensibility around gender equity um and i'm really excited as a practitioner to think about that right like we don't always need new organizations to do new activities but we can stand up an initiative learn a bunch of stuff seed it in our local communities and sort of allow it to continue to have an ongoing impact and I think that's a really interesting model for us to consider as a practice and that there is a lot for us to learn there.
1: How, what does a, a program for that look like? You know, like an initiative, could you kind of describe, uh, you know, like in Miami, what does that program look like? I'm just curious to kind of think through tactically, uh, what is it on the ground implementation? And I'm sorry to interrupt your train of thought. I just think it'll be exciting for a practice just to kind of learn, what does a program look like?
2: Yeah. So um, what's interesting is we, uh, we think about the work we do more as interventions than programs. Um, and the subtle difference for me about that is uh, the intended impact rather than the bespoke nature of a program that we can sort of package and sell. So the way we've moved through our ecosystems is first uh, with an eye and ear to see and listen. What is working in each of these ecosystems to enhance the likelihood of just and equitable outcomes for our target population And what's missing. And all of that is informed through research, desk research, interview research, um, and a collection of all of the insights that we gather about how each of those ecosystems is working. We also, in many instances, David, are the first people that have brought to bear an expectation around accountability relative to gender in the sort of justice Discussion, right? There are a variety of ways that people think about economic equity, justice, or inclusion. And in the US, it is often um, white or black um, in orientation, urban and rural, so it can be geographic. Um, But there isn't as much, strangely, sort of work being done to ensure that there's an inclusive strategy around gender. Um, and so in many instances, we were the voice in the room calling that into question and carrying the data forward to say this is what the opportunity is and this is how we're missing it. Um, so we start uh, by by listening to the research. Uh, we bring the voice into the room about accountability. And then in every city where we've been seated, we um We co-create interventions that will solve particular challenges that the ecosystem is having. So to answer your question specifically, in Miami, one of the very real challenges is getting a majority population, which is predominantly male, uh, maybe white, brown, or black in orientation, but it is disproportionately male, to assume And accountability about gender. And so in response to that as a community, we built a champions program, which was really about educating the majority to the opportunities that exist and stand unfilled, um, creating an awareness of the data, both qualitative and quantitative, um, a new sort of philosophical sensibility about why this is an economic imperative, and then skill building to get there. What can it look like to be a better ally in the workplace as an investor, as an educator? How can we help you change your perspective to become better allies for gender inclusion across the community? And so we co-create these programs, we build them together with partners. And then our ultimate hope is we can seat that intervention at a local partner for ongoing impact and that we then build a new set of experiments to fill other gaps in the ecosystem that are emerging. In Chicago, there's been a lot of work done on access to capital. Um, People talk about that all of the time, but we really sliced it down to a very narrow sliver Um, venture capitalists are predominantly white and male. And until we change that, we're not going to change uh, at scale the face of the people within the portfolio. So one of the interventions we experimented with in Chicago was a venture fellows program, but not sort of your traditional train you to be a venture fellow and then go work in a majority firm. It's more um, source deals that you yourself as a venture fellow are pitching to venture capitalists and then ultimately find your way into working for and founding a fund as an emerging fund manager. And that has been really solving the problem of not only getting more people in the pipeline to become venture capitalists, but shifting the way the majority are hearing the pitch for investment. Um, not only being from people inside their firm who are disproportionately members of the majority population, but from folks outside the firm who are not from the um, majority population. And obviously, these interventions require you to move first to the willing, right? You're not going to change someone's mind about the way they see the world. Um, But if they already see the world in the way you do yet, they don't know how to execute just and inclusive investments. You're the perfect partner for us because we can teach you, and so those are the those are just a few uh, examples of the interventions in DC. One of our most extraordinary interventions has been um, a hack for impact dinner series. So back to your sort of notion about convening and collaborating. Um, We've curated these beautiful, very intimate dinners around a single problem and collectively hack to a solution, which we then invest in for experimentation. And when the experiments work, we invest in them to move them at scale, right? So it's really... Uh, the scientific method over and over and over again, but we're bringing, we think, new data and insights and an accountability about inclusion that maybe hasn't always oriented toward this particular population. And then um, lastly, I think what we've been able to do, because I've always worked um, more in racial equity and inclusion, is to bring a real intersectionality to the way we think about gender, right? So uh, our sensibility isn't singularly about white women, but it is about all women, um, irrespective of race, uh, ethnicity, ability, socioeconomic experiences, um, and I think that's important because often uh, we can say women and maybe we really do mean white women, um, sort of the royal we, and, and we're really clear that we mean sort of all women and disproportionately those who have been um, overly marginalized. And then my final thought on this, which I didn't expect to learn, David, when I moved into an orientation toward gender um, Gender as a construct is very fluid and ever-changing. And we all have the opportunity and obligation to understand what that means, right? So when we hung a shingle that said uh, gender equity in tech, we had a a number of people who identify as trans or non-binary feel seen for the first time. And while that may not necessarily have been the intent, It was the outcome, and our team had to learn in real time what the data around those populations looked like, what the lived experience for those populations are. And we were reminded that the human experience is ever-changing, and we have the opportunity to understand better what those experiences are for people that don't necessarily live – very neatly in the binary. And that has allowed us to work with neurodivergent technologists and deaf technologists and a whole host of other um, sort of categories of the human experience that I don't know that we would have dug as deeply into relative to our capacity and understanding if we didn't get that influx of trans and non-binary humans saying, you're here now figure out how to serve my needs and hear my play and understand our challenges as they may in some instances be different than what you expected.
1: Wow. That, that speaks to uh, learning in real time and being inclusive in real time versus, you know, we come with a fixed notion of a design for the program. Uh, That's fascinating. Uh, So where where is get cities going next because we'd love to include some in the show notes and we'd love to have people reach out to you as well uh the future of the program and then also you know where uh is leslie headed next and and uh you know what what are you reflecting on these days i mean uh, there are very few people nationally that have the kind of lived experiences insights relationships around this work uh, I can think of maybe you know a handful of people that that have had this very unique um uh experience uh you know where where are you headed next?
2: yeah, um, so I you know I think what's interesting about life is I've come to accept that I don't have to know all things with the absolute clarity I once expected. Um, I do know this. I know that we will work really hard over the coming year to ensure that the GAT sensibility interventions and um, humans with whom we've been working on this effort will continue to exist and create impact and sustain um, across the geographies uh, where where we've existed um, I think it's an interesting learning opportunity for the practice to understand what that distribution and sustainability can look like so more to learn and share about that maybe a year from now I could come back on and tell you um, all of the things we learned it has been a really intense and reflective period I think for our team um, and and I want what we've learned to really benefit all of the people in this practice so that that is a commitment that I have. Um, as, as we move through this next phase of work with Get. Um, you know that I, I took a month sabbatical to really uh, rest, reflect, and open myself up to where I want to exist um, next in this work and in this world. And I've asked a lot of people that I trust a lot for their insights and advice and counsel on that, many of whom you've interviewed on this very podcast and have given me um beautiful insights. I think I've come down to understanding that I want three things to be present in the next phase um, or season of my career. Um, Joy, uh, because I I think it's critical for us to find that in everything we do. Um, Simplicity, so sort of cutting out a lot of the extra anxiety and um, bureaucracy that sometimes comes with um, economic development as a practice and impact. Um, I am a human that lives to, to create an impact in the world and um, very uh, maybe cliche, just sort of leave this place better than I found it. I think for me, for uh, the foreseeable amount of uh, time in the short term, that's going to be working with people, Uh, like you and those you interview across the country to help bring the things that I've learned across this long career, um, the insights, the myriad failures um, into strategic thinking and design um, in ecosystems across the country um, with a specific eye, obviously always to justice, but, Uh, access to capital and a policy framework that moves this work at scale, but also sustainably. I think right now we're living in a time when we're seeing a lot of what we thought were fully codified rights um, sort of uh, deteriorate in our hands. Um, uh, Affirmative action deteriorated while I was uh, on my sabbatical and I came back quite distressed that we continue to erode the very structures that have helped us build toward a more just and inclusive um, society and economy. So I think the next season of my career is going to have to really be very focused on uh, how we build policies and sensibilities locally, regionally, and nationally that sort of solve for some of that. I also know that human behavior will only get us so far, and we can incentivize people to behave a certain way, but we also have to have a series of sort of guidelines and boundaries that maybe in some ways create a few sticks around participation, not just carrots. And I think that's where um, where I want to be. I am really fortunate to know some of the smartest, most creative, intelligent um, just loving and uh, inspiring people that just being able to think about working with any or all of them in some capacity is bringing me a ton of energy right now.
1: So I asked one hard question per podcast. So here's my hard question for you. So when you said the next phase of my career, it's joy. I was like, okay, I need that in my life right now, so I'm going to check that box. I'm going to try to find more joy every day. Simplicity—we all unnecessarily make our lives so complex uh, that you know the hardest thing actually is to be simple. You know, it's very counterintuitive. But then when you said impact, I became sad all of a sudden. So help me understand. This is the hard question: Is there a way that you found to have it be joyful and simple? And yet be impactful because, you know, we almost have live in a society where we feel, you know, that we just talked about before getting on the po- the podcast, this counterintuitive nature of human thought, which is that if I'm not productive and if I haven't, you know, squeezed 10 hours out of eight hours, I've somehow shortchanged myself. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, you know, how, you know, because I love that and I feel like there is something there that we need to really think about in that joy and simplicity can truly still get uh impact that is just as meaningful and as big as chaos and 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 a lot of you know uh frustration
2: yeah so i'm going to say something back to you that you said to me as we were preparing for this podcast um and i think impact is as simple as how we make people feel i really do believe that that matters more than anything we do and i was really fortunate to have amazing board chairs across the course of my career. And every time I became frustrated with the resistance in the system or the failure in the system or the racism, misogyny, uh, yucky emotional content of the system, um, those chairs would always say to me, When you can't find it anywhere else, remember it in the people you've touched. Literally, it comes down to a human. And so I just want to keep uh, pouring into people, receiving energy from people, learning from people, teaching from people, helping single individuals find their power, their joy, their influence, their rest, their resistance, their justice. And I believe that's how we create the greatest amount of impact. Um, and you answered that question for me before we even started.
1: Well, thank you. That that makes a lot of sense, and that's how I'm trying to, you know, change the way I look at how productive I am. Which is, am I creating meaningful uh, impact? Am I am I leaving some kind of uh, something that people will take notice of? That hey, you know, I talked to this person, and this person noticed me. And I think there's a lot to that, that uh, in the in the hustle and bustle of trying to create impact, we kind of break things around us, things that, you know, we don't need to break. Yeah. Uh, so, so uh, last question, and we will add a lot of this in the show notes, but if you look back and reflect it, and if you are speaking to a practitioner that's starting out or is somebody that's got a, just a couple of years under their belt what would you tell Leslie that just entered tech town if she had to do it again? What would you tell somebody that's just starting out?
2: Um, I think I would, I would tell them this. You will be urged to make a lot of decisions that feel uncomfortable or weird for you. And in Every instance that occurs, ask yourself, how does this decision best serve the humans in the work we do every day? Because I think the clarity about the decision to be made exists on the other side of that question. And often the people we seek to serve at the other side of this work, are nowhere in the conversation. And so for me, every time I've gotten lost, I just brought them back into the conversation and said, what should we do for them? And if you're a good practitioner, you've heard from them directly what serving them looks like, and make the decision that answers that question. And it will more likely than not be the right decision. And it will definitely um, do less harm than any other decision you could have made.
1: That's powerful. Thank you, I think that that resonates with me too. Uh, and I say it a different way and not as powerfully and beautifully, like you said, but one of the things that we try so hard is to make it human-centered. Yeah, that what we do has the human being has to be at the center of the outcomes you're trying to drive. And a lot of times we're working on a project for the city of Dallas, uh, an entrepreneur of color fund, and we did a design thinking session specifically so that we didn't create the solution that sounded beautiful and great and raised all this money, but never thought about the human at the center of the problem we're trying to solve. So that's beautiful.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. I think one of the one of my cautions about jargon is that we say it and forget to do it, which is why you have to break it down. What does human centered actually mean? Right? Like what question are we answering? Who are yeah. we answering it on behalf of and have we heard from them? Because I see a lot of folks that use those words, but don't sort of live that in execution. And so I think our comments together uh, create the space for that to occur.
1: Absolutely. Mine is pure jargon, and and I know (laughs) what it means because I come from, you know, practicing it. But for a lot of people, that just sounds good, but doesn't mean anything. So I will say it the way you actually said it, uh, (laughs) which is way better.
2: (laughs) I love that. We're always learning from each
1: other. Absolutely. This has been fascinating and we would love to have you back here. uh, As you, you know, navigate through the next phase and and get more clarity, we'd love to have you back here and we look forward to uh, now that we're connected, you know, collaborating a lot more closely going forward.
2: I love that. Thank you for having me. It's been a joy. Every time we're together, uh, I feel like we've known each other forever and in ways we have, um, and I am really excited about the things that we will do together um, over the coming years. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast about entrepreneurship led economic development. Special thanks to our renowned guests for joining us. You can find show notes, more episodes, send us ideas, and subscribe to our newsletter on our website, economicimpactcatalyst.com. Breaking Down Barriers is a presentation of Economic Impact Catalyst and is edited by Lauren Bernard. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Breaking Down Barriers, available for free wherever you listen to your podcasts.